According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would. We're back in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, brand new chapter to get started with. Hebrews chapter 3. Appreciate so much uh, Randy Blair filling in for me, taking last Sunday and the men that took the Wednesday nights and appreciate the time away and your prayers, but it's good to be back. All right, Hebrews chapter three, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. All right, and we'll see how far we get with this today. Uh, we'll adjust some of the uh, translation there a bit uh, to express the present tense of our Savior's faithfulness and to reflect the present tense of His ongoing ministry as the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us, that we might receive the Word implanted, which is able to save our souls. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, I thank you for a lampstand that makes your word the number one priority. I thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters that are humble before your throne of grace, and they are hungry to be fed, and they are eager, they are diligent to present themselves approved before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I pray this morning as we open up your scriptures that your faithfulness would abound, that, Father, you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us the ears to hear, humble us to receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. There's a great big therefore that starts chapter 3. <laughs> and of all of the different therefores, uh, there's some hatis and there's some oons and there's some gars and there's some, there's some other Greek particles that represent therefore. And this is a hothen which is not one of the more usual ones. And uh, it actually is a very loaded expression. Um, so if there are different flavors of therefore, this is perhaps the richest of all the therefores. And in fact, we have to um, encompass everything that was contained in chapters 1 and 2. And so I don't know how many classes we're into this now. This is Hebrews lesson, uh, whatever the number is, 28 looks like. And so everything that we've done in, in the last 27 hours of, of chapters 1 and 2 to d digest that meat, to digest the, the depths of what's there in, uh, in the prologue, in the glory of Christ over the angels, in being seated at the Father's right hand until I make your enemy a footstool for your feet, all of that doctrine, all of that now has served to introduce the book. It's like chapter 3 starts the book all over again. Therefore, holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling. And these are the expressions we're going to focus on. The holy brethren we get, because the holy brethren was introduced just a couple weeks back in chapter 2. Uh, but the partakers of a heavenly calling does not have an introduction in the first two chapters. In fact, only by inference can we understand it on the basis of the first two chapters and on the basis of Paul's epistles will we have an appreciation for being, uh, for having a heavenly calling and for being a partaker of the heavenly calling. And that's what I want to take uh, today to, to, uh, to expand upon and to open our, our thinking to a much broader, um, I think, realm than a lot of Christians pay attention to. Because uh, in so many ways, the Bible is reduced to a handbook. Uh, in so many ways, Christianity is just uh, uh, you know, helpful hints for a happy life. And uh, failing to recognize that the whole counsel of God's Word is equipping us to be seated with Him where He is, at the right hand of the Father. And we need to be faithful as He is faithful. And we need to serve. We need to hold fast our confession. And so all of this really comes out here in, uh, in the midst of of verse 1. So therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. And uh, we're going to kind of walk through it here and give you some, 
some, uh, some detail on this, but this should lay to rest as if we haven't already proven the case in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the author here is writing to believers. He's writing to born-again believers in Jesus Christ, believers that have a background in the Old Testament. And I would put forth, I would agree with the theories that believe it's written to a priestly audience, that is Jewish believers that were saved as Old Testament believers and that crossed into the church age when they came to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That the author here, whether it be Barnabas, I've held for years and years, or Luke now, which I'm starting to hold more strongly, uh, whoever the author is, is writing to a Jewish audience and writing to a priestly audience. And uh, there's no question that they are believers. He calls them holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. And so when we get to the warning passages, we've already covered one in chapter 2. There's another one coming up here in chapter 3. Five dominant warning passages in the book of Hebrews, and they're all written to believers. We need to pay attention to these warnings and make the appropriate application, and we'll, uh, we'll have a good handle on that here thanks to these, uh, these careful studies such as this one. All right, and so we talk about the command to consider, and who is it that's being commanded to consider? The uniquely suited people are commanded to consider. Israel couldn't consider like we can. And here's the point. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, are uniquely suited to consider Jesus and to consider him in this way. All right. An Old Testament believer could consider the coming Messiah. Uh, an Old Testament Gentile believer could consider a coming Redeemer. Job himself said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And, and so an Old Testament believer, whether Jew or Gentile, could look forward and consider what had been promised. Uh, whether they were Gentile considering their Redeemer or they were Jews considering their Messiah. An Old Testament believer could look forward and consider what was promised and anticipate that he who promised is faithful. You and I, though, in the church age, after the fact, we are now suited in a very unique way, in a way that no Old Testament believer ever could, uh, beyond the fact that it's hindsight rather than uh, foresight. All right, we're looking back to the cross instead of looking forward to a promise. And that's, that's huge right there. But beyond that, beyond the fact that we're looking back, we're also looking up. All right, we are heavenly. We already are a heavenly people. We are suited in a way that no stewardship has ever been suited. We are holy brethren. And this becomes uh, significant, all right? And the partakers of a heavenly calling are also significant. No Old Testament believer could make this claim. They could be saved. You know, Gentiles like Job could get saved. Gentiles like Noah. Gentiles like Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Enoch was a great hero of, of an example there of a Gentile believer in Old Testament times. But he was not a partaker of the heavenly calling, as you and I are. You see, to be a partaker of the heavenly calling requires you to be baptized into union with our Savior in His victory, that He ascended to the right hand and He was seated at the Father's right hand. When He made purification from sins, He was seated at the Father's right hand. And we taught that in chapter 1. This then equips us in a way that no stewardship has ever been equipped. And we have advantages that no uh, Jew ever had in the Old Testament, or no Gentile ever had, or any angel had in their stewardship before the uh, creation of Adam. Okay? And Hebrews takes us back to the angelic world as well as the Old Testament times for humanity. And so we have holy brethren. Now this should not be a surprise to us because you might recall in chapter 2 we discussed this in the blessings of our sanctification. In chapter 2 we notice, and I'm going to back up beyond verse 10 uh, to verse 9 so that we can get the whole context here of what verse 11 is really telling us here. But we taught this a few weeks back and, and you hopefully remember. It says, uh, we do see Him. This is what we do presently see. Okay, And even now I've got to back up one more verse. <laughs> All right, Because verse 8 highlights what we don't see. We don't yet see all things subjected to Him. 
And so if you've got some confused Christian friends that think we're already in the kingdom, we should already be, you know, reigning as kings, uh, they're, they're preemptively in a place that we're not there yet because we don't see it yet. And the author of Hebrews is making that point. So we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The kingdom is on the way, but it's not here yet. What we do see, however, what we do see, if we have the eyes to see it, and we do as believers, we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. We see Christ. We're fixing our eyes on Christ. Not only are we fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, but we are seeing him as he presently is seated at the Father's right hand. We are seeing the Savior who was for a little while lower than the angels, but who presently now has been given a name above every name, who presently now is exalted above the angels. There was never an angel invited to sit at the Father's right hand. To which of the angels did he say? None of them. But to Jesus Christ, when he ascended in victory after the cross, when he ascended in victory, the Father said, sit at my right hand. And so the positional truth of of Jesus Christ, what he does now in session and what we do now in Christ becomes the, the, the complete impact of the book of Hebrews. All right, if we can grasp it today, then we do ourselves a huge favor for every chapter between now and the end of the book. All right, because our priesthood is predicated upon a living Savior the apostle and high priest of our confession, seated at the Father's right hand. And you and me, we are seated positionally right there with him. We also are at the Father's right hand because we are in Christ. And so all of this will be a blessing for us. Now, so we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because, and it is absolutely causative, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Without the suffering, there is no crown. Without the cross, there is no crown. Satan tried to offer it to him without the suffering. (laughs) He said, hey, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms and all their glory. He was offering the crown without the cross, without the suffering. And Jesus said no. Right? He answers every temptation with with Scripture. That's why we want Scripture memory. (laughs) All right. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was the grace of God that put him on the cross, so the grace of God can provide us eternal life. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Notice that? The plan of God does not center on you. It does not center on me. The plan of God centers on Jesus Christ. He is the creative agent through whom everything was made, but he's also the destiny. God the Father has designed all of this to glorify his Son, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Now there's sonship doctrine in the Old Testament. Israel is his son. Israel is his firstborn. There is sonship language in the Old Testament, but it is not linked to glory. It is not linked to heaven. It is not personally linked to Christ as you and I are in Christ. This is our positional truth in Christ in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now here's where we get to our holy brethren in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, that's what holiness is. Holiness is being sanctified. Holiness is what God has done on our behalf, that God has positionally sanctified us in Christ. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay? Holiness is not a competition. Holiness is not a, not a, uh, a, a stick to beat other people up with. To, it's not a relative thing to, in competition that I am obviously more holy than you. And so here's what we talk about. No. <laughs> we are all holy. We are all sanctified by the sanctifier and the work that he accomplished on the cross. That's our positional sanctification as we, as we teach it. And so he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's the doctrine in chapter 2, and that's what introduces chapter 3. The author says, okay now, holy brethren, 
And then he adds to it. He says, all right now, holy brethren, do I have your attention? Holy brethren, I'm talking to you. Holy brethren. And he doesn't stop with that name. Now he's going to add to that name. And he calls us partakers of a heavenly calling. Partakers of a heavenly calling. And this is something that demands our, our focus. This is something that, that we better pay attention to. And there are authors, there are good authors out there that do a lot of work on metacoy, that do a lot of work on the vocabulary and spell it out. And there are also some problematic authors that teach the metacoy doctrine, and I think they, they miss their focus on some things. And so I'm going to try to highlight some of that this morning also. <laughs> Make sure we're clear on metakoi as a noun, a plural noun, versus um, you know, metakos as singular. The verb is meteko, and we'll talk about uh, the verb, because one of those verses is the verb rather than the noun. And so we'll play a little bit of a Sesame Street game this morning. We're going to say one of these things is not like the other, okay? One of these things just doesn't belong. And you're going to catch it very easily. You're going to catch it very easily, because in one of these applications, the focus switches to what we would call experiential sanctification. But we would refer, refer to uh, our volitional actions in time and things that we do uh, in, our, in, our, in our experiential sanctification rather than our positional sanctification. Okay, And if you had teaching on that, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but the bulk of them, though, are positional. Almost all of them, except for one, Almost all of them refer to our position in Christ. And so they refer absolutely, without exception, they refer to every born-again believer in the church age. All right? Even the biggest loser in the church age. The, the, the crummiest Christian you ever met or ever heard about. Okay? That, uh, that, yeah, was not a disciple, did not grow in the Word of God, died the sin unto death. Guess what? They are bride of Christ. They are positionally in Christ as you and I are. And the blessings that we have um, are uh, absolute blessings. The inheritance we have is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven, will not fade away. So the idea of being a partaker of a heavenly calling. Now, in the first two chapters, by the way, uh, there was a lot in there about heaven, that he was Lord of heaven and earth. There's a lot in there that he's greater than the angels, that he ascended back, he was seated at the Father's right hand, that he's, he's still there, that he is seated waiting for the Father to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so that's kind of where we've left it. That's where the author of Hebrews has left it. That's where, as we finish two chapters and we're moving into chapter three, we're kind of, you know, on the edge of our seat wondering, when is he going to leave his seat? Okay. And it doesn't happen in this book, okay? This, the rest of this book is about our priesthood with Jesus Christ seated and still looking forward, still looking for that day. As we anticipate that coming day, it's going to be a goad. It's going to be a, a motivation for us to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this becomes uh, really the, the uh, application for the rest of the book. So partakers of a heavenly calling. If we're going to find principles of our heavenly calling, we're going to find them elsewhere besides um, Hebrews, all right? And so let me just give you a sample of these. Uh, and these are all uh, uh, either metakos as a noun or um, actually they're not. I'm going to move on to a different slide. I'm sorry. These are, these are all ref reference to our calling. Okay, so let me, uh, let me show you what we're dealing with here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. <coughs> Nearly misspoke. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> Man, I only missed one Sunday. It feels like 100 years. All right. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your calling, brethren. And I love these passages that, that reference our calling. Now, it's a different verb to consider there, but it's still the idea that I'm focusing my mind. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God didn't choose you because he couldn't help himself. He didn't choose you because you deserved it. He's looking down from heaven and goes, oh my, look at that special person. I, gotta, I just got to save them. Okay? It's by grace through faith, all of us. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things 
which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man can boast before God. And this is not only the reality in the human realm, but also resolves the angelic conflict and the fall of the angels and the basis for their rebellion in their own glory, in their own worthiness, in their own merit. And God says, look, I don't deal on the basis of merit and what you've earned and deserved. It's the riches of my glory in Christ Jesus that his plan calls to be poured out upon humanity. All right. And so there's calling. And this is uh, applicable to every single one of us, okay? Uh, do you see anything in, in this passage that, that talks about uh, people that are different from other believers? Is this a passage that differentiates between victorious believers and loser believers? No, okay? And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of other passages that will distinguish between, you know, uh, rewarded and unrewarded uh, believers. That there are losers in the church age. There are, there are, as I say, the sin unto death, and, and there are folks who are going to stand before the judgment seat and they'll watch everything go up in flames. And yet they themselves are saved, so is yet through fire. Okay? So there are believers will have more rewards than other believers. There's not, that's not, you know, it's not an e- equality existence in glory. However, this is not one of those such passages. This is a passage that's speaking to the body of Christ universally, speaking to the body of Christ absolutely, that it is a part of our positional truth in Christ, that we are all uh, under this calling, okay? So by His doing, nobody can boast on this, because by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You see that? Put your finger on that. That's positional truth, okay? And that's every believer in the church age, from Pentecost to rapture. That's the body of Christ. And uh, we want to be clear on this. I think there's too too much confusion that creeps in 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 other passages. All right, how about Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1. We'll talk about the, uh, the calling here. Ephesians chapter 1, and in the risk of reading the whole chapter, and my favorite sentence that starts in verse 3 and doesn't stop, um, in any event, this is a, uh, a powerful chapter that speaks to our position in Christ and the heavenly, the blessings that are ours. I'll just spotlight verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay. So in this chapter, are we talking about a difference between winners and losers? Are we talking about, you know, more rewarded believers on the one hand versus less rewarded believers on the other hand? Not at all. No. We're not dealing with anything experiential here whereby there are degrees of reward. We're talking about positional truth that is absolute for the entire body of Christ. That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ that refers to every born-again believer in the church age, from, the Pente- from Pentecost to the rapture. All right, and so the long sentence then continues, or starts there and takes you on down. Now, this is a blessing that is actually um, our blessing to focus on and to pray about and to meditate on and to hide this, this word in our heart. And his prayer item here in this, in this chapter, verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know What is the hope of his calling? And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And so all this whole portfolio of assets, this whole positional truth reality that is our birthright, it is our blessing in Christ. The sadness of it is, is that far too few believers even know what it is. And Paul is praying that the Ephesian recipients of this letter would have their eyes open to see it. Because when you see everything God has done for you on grace basis up front, that becomes a powerful motivation to live in a uh, appreciation and thanksgiving reflection. Okay, Not to earn and deserve anything, but to reflect the grace of God that has saved each one of us. And so there it is. The hope of His calling. And that's an absolute positional truth issue for the entire body of Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 1 and verse 4, still in Ephesians. 
Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That means by grace through faith, right? That's the calling with which we've been called. We're going to walk worthy of that. If we walk in legalism, that's not worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, it goes on. But that's, again, positional truth. Is there anything in here that leads you to believe that some believers are more called than other believers? No. It is a universal blessing for the bride, the bride of Christ. This is our calling. The author of Hebrews calls it a heavenly calling and says that we are not just called, but we are partakers of that call. Okay? And that also becomes, I think, a, a thrill to consider. Philippians 3, 4. This is the closest we have to a parallel of, of Hebrews 3, 1 anywhere in the Scriptures. And I think it's part of the evidence that supports Luke as the author or even Barnabas. I think both were associated with Paul during his second missionary journey, during the time that he passed through Philippi. Uh, I think Luke more so than Barnabas. Actually, Barnabas had split from Paul prior to that. He'd taken John Mark and gone off uh, on a separate journey. And so the idea that all the parallels between Philippians and Hebrews, I think they speak more to the Lucan hypothesis than the Barnabas hypothesis as far as uh, the authorship of Hebrews goes. But here in uh, Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize, and what does he call it? Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, the upward call. That's not an identical term to the heavenly call, partakers of a heavenly calling, but it is close, and I think it functionally communicates the same thing. Different vocabulary, but communicates the same thing. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And to me, that's a functional equivalent to partakers of a heavenly calling. And so we see the uh, the emphasis here. And this, uh, too, I think also, I mean, we have the unique blessings. We have the absolute blessings that are ours in Christ. We have this universal call. We have all of these things. And so... The, the application is not, well, you know, go live like a carnal slug and do what you want to do. The application is, man, everything he's done on your behalf, press on, endure, strive still more. Paul, the apostle of grace, says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work harder than all the rest of those other apostles put together. Okay? Grace is not a... a uh, a goad to laziness. I think grace is the greatest goad for diligence that God could ever uh, invent. And this is what he's given us here. Second Thessalonians 1.11 talks about our heavenly call. Again, and all of these are dealing with uh, positional truth realities that are true for every believer in the church age. Second Thessalonians 1.11. We see it here. Um talking about us versus them. It's a great chapter for the we's and the you's and the them's. And uh, chapter 2 will continue that uh, contrast because there's us and then there's those guys. And uh, thank God we're not those guys anymore because those guys are headed for wrath and we're not. And so... Um, uh, verse 7 talks about giving relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So you want to be on the business end of those swords? No. We want to be with him holding those swords, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that's not us. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints. Oh, there we are. You see that? That's where we want to be. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe for our testimony to you was believed. Isn't that glorious? 
We're just, our jaws are going to drop. We're going to be following on white horses. We're going to land. We're going to watch what he does, and we're going to marvel. We're going to be just, wow. I can't believe I'm seeing this. Isn't that amazing? Now, to this end, also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about a privilege. Wow. And this is ours. This is our calling. This is our privilege. This is our glory. This is our destiny. Absolutely, universally, everybody in the body of Christ, from the biggest victor to the biggest loser in the church age, universally the bride will be with him. We can't lose sight of that. All right. There are other passages, don't get me wrong, okay? Other passages do distinguish between more rewarded, less rewarded, some, in fact, that are so unrewarded, even the one talent they do have is taken away and given to the one who has ten. Okay? There are passages that will address inequality of rewards and the, uh, the, the superabundant grace that comes on that basis. But these passages we're seeing today are not those. The passages we see, we're seeing today are stressing the bride of Christ positionally in Christ and the recipient of all these grace blessings. We can't throw them away. We can't lose them. We can't, who's going to snatch us away from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. This is what we have to look forward to. 2 Timothy 1.9 If you were with us last hour, you heard this already. I'm going to flip my page and read it. Alright. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. You see that? Universal. This is the body of Christ. We share the same salvation. We share the same heavenly calling. Here it's called a holy calling. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. But it's still what we're dealing with in Hebrews 3.1. Saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is a plan He put into, into action before the foundation of the world. This was a plan that was put into motion. The Father proposed it. The Son and the Holy Spirit agreed to it. The Son has been executing it ever since. <laughs> and you think we can earn and deserve this? Are you kidding me? We weren't even around when this plan was agreed to and put forth and launched. So again, it is, uh, it is our position. If you are saved, then you have this heavenly calling. The body of Christ is the recipient of, uh, of all these passages, in particular the one we're studying today of Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. No, no other stewardship can consider Jesus that way. No other stewardship had the confession we have. Ours is the confession of the, the royal family of God, the, the, the church age, the body of Christ, the body and bride of the Lamb. There's never been a stewardship like us, and there never will be again. <laughs> you know, the, the first person that gets saved after the rapture, guess what? They're not church. They're not body and bride. They're either a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, as they were in the Old Testament. I believe most likely the first batch to get saved post-rapture is going to be Jewish. It's going to be the 144,000 and it's going to be uh, to start the post-church existence. Anyway, um, one more on this. Peter, most of those are Pauline. There is a Peter use. And I think Peter learned a lot from Paul's writings. He, uh, he admitted that. He said he, didn't, he couldn't understand some of it, but he was, he was <laughs> yeah, the first pope struggled a little bit to try to figure out Paul's doctrine. Um, but he, he learned, and this is one in particular, our heavenly calling, our position in the bride of Christ, 2 Peter 1.10. And uh, he says, Therefore, brethren, 
be all the more diligent. You see, when you, when you focus on positional truth, it's a goad to diligence. Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And this is a fun text. I think in this passage we can teach both. We can teach the positional blessings and the experiential blessings. We can show the universal provision for the body of Christ on a positional basis whereby we all enter into the kingdom. However, some of us will have that entrance more abundant than others. And the more abundant entrance addresses the experiential uh, components as we maintain faithfulness through our Christian walk. Now, all of that being said, what do we do with, with Romans chapter 11? <laughs> well, we, we prefer to not have Romans 11 in our Bibles. No, no, we love Romans 11 in our Bibles. It's the other people that prefer to not have Romans 11 in their Bibles. But we rightly divide the word of truth and we love having Romans 9, 10, and 11 in our Bibles to rightly spell out the differences between Israel and the church because Israel also had a calling. All right? Israel also had a calling, but guess what? It wasn't our calling. Our calling is not their calling. Their calling was not our calling. And their calling is still in effect. It doesn't expire it has not been replaced. We are not, uh, we don't promote replacement theology, which is, you know, God lied to the Jews, but now he's going to be truthful to us. Because if he can lie to Israel, he can lie to us. What kind of liar do we serve? Okay. A God that can lie like that is not the God that can save us. The promises to Israel are still in effect. The bride does not replace the Jewish people. The Jewish people have a destiny. There is a future for the, the throne of David. And so um, this gets quoted a lot and out of context a lot and some isolated Bible verses sometimes, any isolated Bible verse is, is going to be at risk of that. But the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. They are irrevocable. The gifts and calling are irrevocable. Now we often grab that and bring it into our application and force it into a a church age context and application, but Romans 9, 10, 11 is not, is not dealing with us as the bride of Christ. It's talking about God's destiny for Israel. That uh, they're presently on hold, they're presently a partial hardening until the, has been given to them until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But God's not done with them. And part of the proof that God's not done with them is this very principle. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And so that means their calling is irrevocable. Now it's not the same as our calling, we get that, but it is a calling and it is still in effect. It is not, it is without repentance, it is irrevocable. And so consider that for what it is. So since we are partakers of a heavenly calling, you know, you got all the tribes of Israel, you got Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and all of those tribes except Levi had a, had a land grant. They had a portion, they had boundaries, they had uh, allotments that were, that were theirs. And, and, and which of those tribes got, got heaven? <laughs> None of them. All right. Their heritage, their, their land grants were all on earth, in the promised land. From the great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt with the, brook, with the, the great sea to the west. That was the, the boundaries of their habitation. But we are partakers of a heavenly calling. It's a huge difference. And so we are uniquely suited to consider Jesus. No Jew in the Old Testament could consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of their confession. Their confession had a high priest, but he was Levitical. Jesus was Judah, not Levi. And so if he wanted to present himself as a high priest to uh, the Jews in the Old Testament, they would have laughed at him, and rightly so. Not us. We consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Okay? We want to be clear on that. Also, the apostle. An Old Testament Jew would have said, what's an apostle? <laughs> okay? You know, show me all the apostles in the Old Testament. You can't. But you can turn to the New Testament, turn to the Gospels, and you start finding that Peter, James, John, those guys, Jesus picked 12 and he called them as apostles. Okay? 
All right. Kind of fun, too, because in the New Testament, we, in the church age, we have apostles and prophets. The, the foundation of the church was, was built by, or on, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And uh, boy, you, you know, try to explain that to an Old Testament believer. Go back to Isaiah's day and explain that. that uh, tell Jeremiah that uh, prophets are about to become second fiddle to the apostles. There's not a prophet from Moses onward that would have ever understood that. Prophets were the pinnacle. Prophets answered to Yahweh. Prophets told kings, you know, what to do. But in the church age, it's apostles and prophets because Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right. So we are uniquely suited to consider Jesus. Now, as we turn to Hebrews 3, we notice something here. For the first time in the book of Hebrews, the author is addressing his readers in the second person. The first reference to the recipients of Hebrews in the second person. Okay? He, he would reference them in the first couple of chapters, but he always did so in the first person, including himself. The first person plural. He would talk about we and us. And, uh, you know, right from the very beginning, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And so the author includes his readers and he includes himself. And he talks about us a lot in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And he'll keep doing that, by the way. He's going to do that throughout the book. He'll include himself in most of the uh, exhortations and the warnings. Okay? And so there's we, there's us. Um, throughout chapter 1, throughout chapter 2, um, we in chapter 2, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention so that we do not drift away. He's not speaking in the second person. He's not using a vocative of address. He's not talking to his audience in chapter 1 or chapter 2. It's not until chapter 3. He lays all that groundwork with the glory of Jesus Christ greater than the angels. And then he says, all right, heavenly people. And then he starts talking to you, okay, to his readers. So the first reference to the recipients of Hebrews in the second person is the first of several times that they are called brethren. They're going to be called brethren here in verse 1, in verse 2, in, uh, in chapter 10 and verse 19, in chapter 13 and verse 22, repeatedly, brethren, 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 all throughout the book of Hebrews. So therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. And this is his introduction here. In chapter 10 and verse 19, again, it's brethren. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, only, uh, only holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, would have a confidence like that. No Old Testament believer would have a confidence like that. In fact, he'd probably, an Old Testament believer would probably be confused thinking about the tabernacle, thinking about the temple, thinking about the earthly replica of the heavenly reality. And he would are you talking about the holy place, that replica? Who has confidence to enter into there? Only one guy, one day a year. And he better have the right sacrifices done ahead of time. <laughs> or uh, he's going to drop dead when he walks in there. One guy, one day a year. Or you and me, all day, every day. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. See, this doctrine, I think this is beautiful. This doctrine, he was teaching on the cross, right? He's hanging there. He says it is finished. He utters that powerful tetelestai statement. And then the veil of the earthly replica was rent in two, exposing the emptiness behind it. And did he go in there? No, he didn't go in there. I had no need to go in there. Had no business going in there. There was nothing to do in there. But he rent the veil in two to show that empty room. And then he breathed his last. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Because 
that earthly replica was simply to teach shadow doctrine, to teach the reality is in the holy is in, in heaven. That's where we are. We're heavenly people, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. And so speaking to the brethren in, in chapter 3, we have our application today. Speaking to the brethren in chapter 10, we'll have the application we'll get to when we get to chapter 10, which uh, tells us to get busy in our priesthood. All right, and we're going to do this in uh, chapter 10. Also chapter 13, another reference to brethren. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. (laughs) Isn't that great? One of the longest books in the New Testament. I think this too may speak to Luke as the author, because look how long Luke is and look how long Acts is. And and, uh, if if you're not familiar with it, uh, Alan is the author of the Lucan authorship. It's called the Lucan Authorship of Hebrews by David Allen. And, And I think it's it's a, it's a good, uh, good material there, all right? The same author also wrote the commentary to Hebrews in the New American Commentary series. So same author, you can read both, both works. All right, again, brethren. So the first reference to the recipients of Hebrews is in the second person, and it's the first of several times they are called brethren. And then he calls them, beyond calling them brethren, he calls partakers, Medicoi partakers. And this is what we got to wrap our minds around because this, I think it's, it's tragic when it's um, neglected. I also think it's tragic when it's misapplied. Okay? And I'm going to make the case this morning and in the coming weeks, I'm going to make the case that the Medicoi partakers is positional, not experiential. Okay? And that's going to fly in the face of Jody Dillo and others, if you're familiar with those works. All right. Metacoy partakers are significant in Hebrews. And the same people he's calling holy brethren are the same people that he's calling partakers of a heavenly calling. And so if being a holy brother is a positional truth blessing for the church age, how can we handle the medical any differently? It's the same recipients, the same, these, these uh, addresses are being placed in apposition together with each other. And so you can't have a brother in Christ who's not a metacos, and you can't have a metacos who's not a brother. They are equivalent expressions. Okay? And they're not uh, synonymous with other expressions, even though... Um, People try to make them that way. You'll see what I mean here. Uh, they had been, uh, Jesus was a metacos, previously referenced in chapter 1 and verse 9. And then the remainder of these all reference us, uh, either as nouns, most of them are nouns, one of them is a verb. And you'll see, uh, you'll see that very clearly as we look at these. All right, so metacoi. And I didn't transliterate or give you a Strong's number or whatever. We don't do a lot of exegesis this hour. But metakos, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S, metakos, okay? A partaker. It's, it's closely related to koinonos uh, for fellowship, for a sharer, okay? Whereas a sharer is uh, maybe more of a passive, receptive type of concept. If you're a sharer of somebody's sufferings or you're a sharer of fellowship or you're a sharer, uh, koinonia speaks of fellowship sharing, Right? We're to share one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Um, Quinonia speaks of sharing fellowship. Metacoi speaks of participation fellowship. And it speaks more to the participation, the active nature of how we partake. And so clearly there's overlap. We're going to share in that what we partake, and we're going to partake in that which we share, and we're going to use both terms, and sometimes we'll use the terms loosely and interchangeably, but other times we will use the terms very precisely. And I want to make sure that we lock in on that. The idea of being a partaker, the idea of being a participant. And that should be not a a shock to anyone in this room, but you'd be surprised, or maybe not, how many Christians view Christianity as a spectator sport. Like going to a football game and sitting there in the stands and you're watching all the 
you know, the hot, sweaty, muscular people running around doing what they're doing. <laughs> and you think, wait a minute, why am I here in the stands? <laughs> I should be on that field. I am on that field. I'm a participant. I am engaged in the angelic conflict of the church age. And this is where I am, a partaker of the heavenly calling, not a spectator. And so as we look at these terms, metacoin, it's not a long word study. In fact, you've got the, the bulk of the uses here. Outside of Hebrews, uh, you've only got one or two other, other places, and I can show them for you here in a moment. Um, uh, there's, there's one in the Gospels where um, the fishermen are out there in the, in the boats, and uh, they've got partners. And uh, you know, they're trying to haul in all the fish, and they have to signal to their partners to come and bring their boats alongside to help haul in the, the, uh, the fish. And so it's translated partners there in the, uh, in the Gospels. But in Hebrews 1.9, Jesus partook. He was a partaker. And it was necessary for him to be a partaker. Um, in Hebrews 1.9, we've got him. Remember we talked about this? Companions, fellows. Who are these companions? You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. We're talking to God, but we're talking to God about His God. <laughs> okay, We're talking about the beloved Son. We're talking about the Christ. And, and, and maybe a lot of these were a bit of a puzzle in Psalm 45, but for us, it's not a puzzle at all. As New Testament believers, we've got the hindsight, we've got the, the perspective to understand this. Great messianic prophecy of Psalm 45. Jesus Christ, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your metakoi, your companions, your partners, your partakers, your fellow partakers. Now, when we taught this back in chapter 1, I told you stay tuned. Because if, uh, if a Jewish believer in the Old Testament was clueless as to what the full impact of this is, it's only because mystery doctrine was withheld from them. Nobody's not their fault. They, they made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know. <laughs> All right, but it was revealed to them they weren't serving themselves but you, things into which angels long to look. And the, the full recognition of the companions of Jesus Christ, no Old Testament believer had a framework to understand that, but we do. We are the companions. We are the partakers. We are the metakoi, partakers of a heavenly calling. And so uh, here we have it. It's used, uh, Metacoy language is used in chapter 3 as we are partakers of a heavenly calling. It's used later in chapter 3 that we are partakers of Christ. That's 3.14. Uh, that we are partaking milk or meat in chapter 5. And that's the one that's slightly different. Then in chapter 6, we're called partakers of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 12, we're called partakers of discipline. And thank God for that. That may be the least favorite of all of this <laughs> this list. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything because all these other things I'm a partaker of mean I'm also a partaker of discipline. Thank God for that too. Thank God for that too. So, um, real quickly then, 3.14. Now this is part of the warning here. In verse 12 it says, Take care, brethren, New audience or same audience? Same audience. Believers. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's a warning to believers. And it's not a warning of losing salvation, but it is a warning of apostasy. And we need to understand what apostasy is and what the consequences are. But he says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called a day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? And I checked for footnotes and fine print and in the Greek, and I can't find any exceptions. Not for me, not for you, not for pastors, not for anybody. Every church-age believer needs to take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. And then it goes on to say, for we have become partakers of Christ. That's us. We're partakers of a heavenly calling in verse 1, and we are partakers of Christ in verse 14. That's us. Holy brethren, partakers of Christ, partakers of a heavenly calling. That's us. And don't let the if scare you. 
Because this if is an if indeed. If and it's true. This is so certain. We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is not maybe we will, maybe we won't. This is not maybe we will and if we do then we are, but if we don't then we're not. Don't fall for that. That scares so many people. And Calvinists want to beat you over the head with it and Arminians want to beat you over the head with it. And we're going to grab hold of that and we're going to beat both of them over the head with in a grace way. We're going to say... <laughs> We're going to say, embrace this positional truth, glory for what it is. Because we are holding fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If and we will. If and we do. If indeed. All right? Partakers of a heavenly calling. Partakers of Christ. I'm going to skip over chapter 5. We're partakers of the Holy Spirit in chapter 6. Again, it's a noun. I skipped over chapter 5. I did that on purpose. That's my design. There's a madness to my method, so hold on, okay? Or there's a method to my madness. Hold on, okay? We'll get back to that. Chapter 6, though, um, notice, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, Hello, believers in the church age, okay? All of us. And then fall away. This is the the very real danger of apostasy. And don't be afraid of it. Just be humble before the Lord. Have the right fear of the Lord so you don't have to be scared of apostasy. Be fearful of the Lord and press on. But it is a legitimate warning and uh, we will all be warned against apostasy. Side trip. Uh, no, no, extra, no charge for this or anything. You just free, but only a believer can apostatize. You ever think about that? An unbeliever can't apostatize because an unbeliever is never in the faith to fall away from. The only one that can fall away is someone that's standing in Christ, and then they don't fall out of Christ. What do they fall away from, and what do they fall away to? Since there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Okay. All this is coming up, so stay tuned. And if you've got co-workers or friends or enemies or people that are trying to convince you that Hebrews will, you know, will cause you to fear losing your salvation, it does just the opposite. I think these warnings are powerful exhortations to assure us that we hold fast until the end. Anyway, stay tuned for that. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of a heavenly calling. Partakers of Christ. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of discipline. Hebrews 12, 8. If you're not a partaker of discipline, you are a bastard. You are not a son. If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers. Hello? This is a universal positional truth for partakers. The metakoi are partakers. We are positionally in Christ. Every one of us. la di dotty everybody. Okay? <laughs> that was a drill sergeant gave me that years ago. All right. If you were without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are bastards. You are illegitimate children. You are not sons. You're the brood of vipers. Okay? positional truth reality if you're born again you're a son okay or daughter you're a you're uh you're legitimate he claims you you're an heir a fellow heir in christ jesus and so you are a partaker of discipline say i had probably the strictest father in the history of fathers and uh, sometimes i you know i look back on it with fondness but not at the time it was incredibly unfair why doesn't so-and-so, you know, Billy, whoever, his dad doesn't, you know, well, my dad would say, well, guess what? I'm not Billy's dad. I'm your dad. So thank God I'm your dad because I love you. Oh. Okay. Point being, Billy's dad deals with him. My dad de- deals with me. And that's what God is saying here. You're my child. You're a partaker of my discipline and thank God for it. 
Now, the one that's different is chapter 5. And it is different in such that it is not the noun metakos, it is the verb meteko, and it's speaking of the activity of partaking. So it's not the state of being that is being a partaker, but it is the activity of partaking that's stressed here in the verb. And in the experiential application now, that's why this is not positional, it's experiential, because it's the verb, not the noun. And we're talking about a choice you have to partake of milk or to partake of meat. And uh, it says in verse 13, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. And so this is the verb, to partake. It's meteko, okay? Now the cognate noun is the, is the, the metakos, which is partaker, but this is a verb. And this is, I think, in the application here, it's showing by experience now in the outworking of what we do, some that are drinking milk and some that are eating meat or solid food, Notice verse 14, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so there are believers that sink their teeth into the meat, and there are a few, and then there are more that don't, okay? And they partake only of milk. And we're going to talk about that. (laughs) Nothing wrong with a baby drinking milk. But if you reach a certain point of time that you should be past that, as it says here in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you know, you're not really a baby, well, you still are babies, but you shouldn't be. What are you doing? We're trying to get you to, you know, leave home and and, and go off to college and and you're you're still nursing. Okay, that's that's a problem. You got to get weaned at some point hopefully long before you leave home to go to college, okay? You see how ludicrous that is? But that's the image that Bible uses, this imagery that by this time, why are you still a nursing babe? Solid food. Solid food is for the mature. And so now in this case, obviously in this case, because it's the verb being used, I think we can approach chapter 5 just fine on an experiential basis. We can talk about volition. We can talk about choices we're making, things we're doing, talking about whether we're humble under the Word of God or we're prideful, talking about whether um, we've grown dull of hearing and we're not using the Word of God. Definitely we can approach this chapter, chapter chapter 4 and 5, we can talk about this this uh, experiential aspect of our Christian walk. And yes, there will be differences there on the basis of experience. There will be some believers that are trained and uh, trained their senses. There will be some more mature believers and some babes, okay? Or what Proverbs calls the fool that's not living the Word of God. But every other passage besides this one, from chapter 3 to chapter 6 to chapter 12, all these other references two of them in chapter 3, that are all positional. They all reference the metakoi on a positional basis. From the greatest believer ever to the biggest loser of the church age. The bride of Christ is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is the body of the redeemed. That is the metakoi, partakers of a heavenly calling. And there is no division of the bride. Thus we shall always be with the Lord means thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay? Now, next week I've got to come back to this. I thought we'd get through this. But considering everything that went into preparing him, think about his present office. Think about his present office. Considering everything that went into preparing him, considering everything that it took to make him the apostle and high priest of our confession. Think about him now. What does he do now as the apostle and high priest of our confession? Because God did a lot. The Father did a lot to get to Jesus to where Jesus is now. And he didn't do that for no reason. There's something that Jesus is suited to do and he's doing it now. Being faithful is faithful now. We get to verse 2, the apostle and high priest of our confession being faithful to him who appointed him. 
being faithful now, today. Sunday, December 3rd, 2017 A.D. Being faithful now. It's not saying he was faithful then back in the first century. I'm going long, I'm sorry. I was on vacation, I'm making up for it. All right, now we'll wrap up. I know. All things decently and in order. So think about that between now and next week. Being faithful in this present consideration. Okay? Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you, thank you for your truth. Thankful. Thank you so much, Father, for opening our eyes to positional truth, realities, and allow these unbelievable, unfathomable riches. Allow us to fathom the unfathomable. Father, open our eyes that we might approach the unapproachable. Father, this is, this is um, a tremendous glory. And we are partakers of everything we're studying here today. So teach us what these things are, that we might live them out, that we might presently today operate in our priesthood even as the apostle and high priest presently today operates in his. Father, teach us what this blessing is, that we might not abuse it, we might not neglect it, that we might thrive in the doctrine that is the book of Hebrews for the body of Christ. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.